0: remember what beatitude means? Blessing, right? Beatitudes means blessing. And so Jesus starts off what I've called the King's Speech, uh, this Sermon on the Mount, by talking about blessings, and they start to sound really counterintuitive. They sound like they have this negative connotation to them when he starts talking about blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the gentle, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And so they start off sounding a little negative, but of course, this is the upside-down kingdom of God, and so he contrasts these with some amazing blessings, some promises, when he talks about how yours is the kingdom of heaven right you you will be comforted you are the ones who will inherit the earth you are the ones that will be satisfied and so he takes these things that seem like negatives and turns them into wonderful promises and they're the promises that Jesus offers for those that are completely his but they get progressively more difficult as we go through i don't know if you've noticed that but they kind of scale up in difficulty as we've been going and so this last one that we talked about 2 weeks ago which was mercy blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And that's what we talked about two weeks ago. Now, I liked that one because I thought, this is one that I think I can actually do. Like, I think I'm a pretty merciful person, right? I can handle mercy, except I can't. <laughs> I'm really not that merciful. I'm actually a self-centered, selfish, judgmental person who says things that he shouldn't. And so, mercy is difficult. Mercy is um, not getting what we deserve. And The problem is, um, it's not easy because I tend to judge people based on what they do, but I judge myself based on my intentions, right? I look at other people and I judge them by the way they're acting. But for me, I'm like, well, I meant to do that. Or that's not what I meant when I said that. And so I judge myself by my intentions. And so I think I can be a more merciful person than others. But in reality, I have just as much trouble with it. And Jesus says... If you're a person who wants mercy, and we all need it, by the way, we all need mercy, then you need to be somebody who's going to extend mercy to others. And mercy is not getting what we deserve. You and I do not deserve salvation. We deserve judgment. That's what we need because of our sin. We deserve judgment, but God offers us salvation anyway. And because of this great debt that you and I have been forgiven, we need to in turn be merciful and forgive other people. That's what we were talking about. And there's this wonderful story in Matthew 18 where Peter goes up to Jesus and he says, Hey, master, how many times should I forgive someone when they sin against me? Like seven times? Like, that sounds pretty good, right? That sounds very spiritual, seven times. Like, that's the perfect number. Seven's the perfect number, so that's got to be it. And Jesus said, actually, Peter, it's 70 times seven. And in case you're trying to work that out, it doesn't mean 490 times. He actually meant you need to keep on forgiving. Like, there's no limit. You need to forgive and forgive and forgive because that's what your heavenly Father has done for you. And Jesus probably sees the expression on Peter's face when he asks him this, and he says 70 times seven, and Peter's like, What? Keep on forgiving? And so he has this parable that he tells in Matthew 18, and I'm just going to read through it. Um, But we basically, we call it the parable of the unmerciful servant. It's Matthew 18, starting in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Cause that's about 20 years worth of income. 20 years worth of income. So, 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is just over three months worth of income, Okay, seizing him, began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant and I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you who do not forgive your brother in his heart. Mercy. The first servant begged for Mercy. And he said, have patience with me, and I'll pay it all back. Now, 20 years worth of debt? Who thinks that he was going to pay that off? Like, not even Dave Ramsey thinks that he's going to pay that off, okay? (laughs) 20 years worth of debt. We have a debt that was unpayable, that was forgiven. God forgave us an unpayable debt. And Jesus said, so have you. So you need to go out in turn and be merciful and forgive other people. So that gets us caught up, gets us caught up from two weeks ago, just a refresher, to this week, which seems to be the most impossible, the most improbable of the Beatitudes, which says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why do I say that one seems like the most impossible? Because by definition, if something is pure, it is undefiled, it is unmixed, it is one singular substance, it's undefiled. Does anybody feel undefiled? I know I don't. I feel, un, I feel contaminated by this world. If something is pure, it is not contaminated. Well, maybe this will make you feel better. Romans 3, verse 10, There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Feel better? <laughs> we are all contaminated. The whole point in Jesus delivering the Beatitudes, the whole point of his Sermon on the Mount was to let those people know, and you and me, that we cannot do it ourselves. It is beyond us. We are in need of a mediator, of a, of a savior. That's what we're in need of. So what does pure in heart mean? Pure in heart, um, really, just in its most you know, simple sense, is holiness. Being pure in heart is holiness. It's a big word. It's really kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around and for good reason. Um, people don't understand the concept of holiness, but what they do is they actually use it when they're swearing. Isn't that something? Um, it's interesting to me that when people don't understand something, they use it when they're cursing. They use Jesus' name when they curse. They use God's name. They use this word holy when they're swearing. This, you want proof of how much the world is against Jesus? No other religious person in history has their name mentioned when people are cursing. Nobody smashes their thumb with a hammer and says, "Hari Krishna. Nobody stubs their toe and says, Muhammad. It doesn't happen. That's how much the world is against Jesus. That's Satan's doing, by the way, but people do not understand this concept holiness. When God created Adam and Eve and he placed them in the garden, they were pure. It was holy. There was nothing wrong with it at all before sin came along. Now, when sin came along, God started his rescue plan and we have been chasing purity and holiness ever since. And God is making a way for that. The central theme throughout the scriptures is holiness. Every spiritual truth in the Bible touches on holiness and being pure in heart. Now, before the the Jewish people suffered political um, oppression, they suffered spiritual oppression uh, because they would get into the cycle where they would walk away from the Lord and they would fall into worshiping idols and immorality and all kinds of stuff, faithlessness. They would leave God and start worshiping so the Pharisees thought, okay, listen, God gave us this list of commandments, but we obviously stink at keeping those. So maybe if we have more rules, that will help us. And then we can come up with a system whereby we can develop our own holiness. If we come up with enough rules, over 600 of them they came up with, that can keep us from becoming impure. But that wouldn't do it. All it led to was a group of people, a nation that was burdened by guilt and frustration and anxiety. That's all those rules developed. They knew they couldn't keep all the rules. No religious system could develop or produce the type of holiness that God requires. And I can't help but wonder, we talked um, a couple weeks ago about the lawyer who stood up to test Jesus and asked him what the most important commandment was. And I, and although he did stand up to test him, I can't help but wonder if he was thinking, you know what, we can't keep all of these rules. We know we can't keep all the rules. What is the most important one? What do you think is the most important one? Maybe I can keep that one. That's why when John the Baptist came on the scene. Ah, uh, people were enthralled with him. He was saying things that were completely against the religious people of the day. He wasn't just another rabbi with another rule, right? He was telling people, "Listen, if you are sorry for if you want to repent of your sins, come and get baptized and follow the Lord, love the Lord." It was very simple, and that's why people were wondering, "Is this guy the Messiah?" Like this guy came along and he's making it easy. Everybody needed, everybody knew they needed more than just outward obedience to the law to be made pure, to be made right in John chapter 6, uh, we had the story where Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And so he tells his disciples, listen, you guys get in the boat, head over to the other side of the lake. I'll meet you over there, which is really strange because if I was disciples, I would have been like, there's 12 of us in this boat. How is he going to get there all by himself? But He hoofs it across the water, literally when he walks on the water and they get over there and this group of people are looking for Jesus. And so they go over, they hear that he went over to the other side. So they track him down. They go to the other side of the lake too. And they run into Jesus. They're like, oh, hey, Jesus, when did you get here? Jesus like, listen, guys, you only tracked me down because I fed you yesterday. You guys had a great meal and now you've tracked me down. Don't work for the food that perishes. And their next sentence was, well, what work do we need to do? Like, what do we need to be doing to do the works of the Lord, right? Like, that, just give us a rule. Give us something to follow, and we'll do it. And Jesus said, this is the work that you believe in the one that he has sent. There is no more work. You only have to believe in the one who can keep them perfectly, because you can't do it yourself. All you have to do is believe. That's why Jesus came, because we cannot keep the law Perfectly, We can't make ourselves pure and holy. Um, in Bible study, when we come across a concept or even a word, it's important to go back and look at where it first took place, kind of the principle of first mention. And so if we look back at where the first time the word holy took place, it's in Genesis 2, and God had just finished creation. Six days he had spent creating everything, and on the seventh day he rested. And it says that he took the seventh day, and he blessed it, and he called it holy. He made the seventh day holy. He set it apart. It was different from all the other days of the week. The Sabbath day was holy. That's how much importance God placed on rest. He took an entire day and said, this is a day that is different. It is set apart. It's a day for rest. It's a day for worship. And that is not the place in our culture. That's not so in our culture. Uh, We live in a culture that is filled with people that are bummed out and burned out. And they do not have rest because they do not have peace. And they don't have peace because they will not rest. The penalty for breaking the Sabbath was death. If you got caught working on the Sabbath, that was a death sentence. And if you do not make time in your life, if you're not intentional about setting time aside to worship the Lord and to focus on him, you are going to be dead spiritually. You have to do that intentionally. Church has become less and less of a priority for people who call themselves Christians. Um, I think we could all agree on this. And the last two years has proven anything. It is that people's priorities have not necessarily been um, Jesus first, if I can say that, in a lot of cases. It has given a lot of people an excuse to kind of disappear from church. If we say we're Christ followers, if we say we follow Jesus, we should be following the things that he asks us to do. And that includes meeting together, getting in the word, worshiping corporately. These are the things that we're supposed to do as God followers, setting aside time that we call holy as unto the Lord. Um, people in that culture didn't take days off. Everybody worked every single day. Why would you take a day off? There is work to do. You had to provide for yourself. You had to plan for the future. You did not take days off. People thought the Jews were crazy because they took one day off and God said, you need to do it. And if you do it, I'll bless you. I'll make sure that everything is taken care of. You'll be provided for if you honor this. And yet we have a difficult time in our culture setting aside two hours on a Sunday, to come together and dedicate that time to the Lord to focus on him and to get in his word. If we can't make Jesus a priority in our lives, how does that make us any different than the rest of the world? Because just having a Bible in your home or just having a cross on the wall or just having a bumper sticker on your car isn't going to do it. It's not about rules. It's about relationship, and it's difficult to have relationship if you're not rubbing up against other people, if you're not here bur- you know, carrying one another's burdens and getting into the word. We are supposed to be different. We're to be set apart. We're to be divinely different, if I can say it that way. Uh, the next place we find this word holiness is in Exodus 3 when Moses sees the burning bush. And he sees this bush that's that's not burning. There's no smoke. It's just on fire. And so he goes to check it out. And when he gets there, he hears a voice coming out of the bush telling him, Moses, remove your sandals because the place where you're standing is holy ground. It's holy ground. When we're in the presence of the Lord, things are holy. Remember that for later. Things are divinely different when we're in his presence. 56 times in the book of Exodus, the word holy is used. Uh, 92 times in the book of Leviticus. This is when we do our reading through the Bible and we get to Leviticus, we kind of slow down a little bit because we're reading about like the priests, you know, and the pots and everything that's consecrated and holy. And and we get caught up in that. But um, it's actually a great study. If you're geeky like me, I love that kind of stuff. It's all about holiness and being set apart to the Lord. Um, In total, over 600 times the word holy is used in the Bible. It's important. It's important. We are to be a people that are set apart, that are different, that are pure. That word heart in the scriptures is full of meaning. Um, it's more than just our feelings. It is uh, what some people call the seat of emotions, but it also has to do with um, how we think and our will in particular. Uh, there's this uh, story in Matthew 9 where Jesus heals the paralytic, and he says, your sins are forgiven, and the Pharisees freak out. And Jesus says this in chapter 9, verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? In this verse, Jesus is talking about who we are on the inside, that part that people can't see. That is where God requires holiness, not just on the outside. The Pharisees were really good at purity on the outside. That's why Jesus said, you guys are like a cup that's been washed on the outside, but inside it's filthy. You guys look great on the outside, but inside you're disgusting. Jesus requires purity on the inside. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The springs of life flow out of your heart. Guys, this is why God destroyed the world in a flood because he says he looked inside of man and the intentions of his heart were evil continually. And this is not in my notes. I was going to talk about it, but we live in an age right now where the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts are evil continually. There are people, there are organizations, there are businesses that do not have our interest or God's interest in mind. Um, for example, we are talking about this yesterday, there is a corporation that is upset they are protesting because they do not have the ability to indoctrinate our children into the LGBT agenda. And if you haven't heard about it, there's a bill that is down in Florida that's been put in front of the legislature by um, Ron DeSantis, right? Governor Ron DeSantis. And here's what the bill says. The bill says we are not going to allow any kind of sex education for children five to eight. Kindergarten through third grade, we're not doing any sex education of any kind. Now, for any normal person, you would say, well, yes, of course, that makes sense. Why would we talk about that with young children? But because they know that he is not for, he is against the LGBT agenda, somebody said, well, I guess we can't say gay in Florida. And so some reporter picked up and said, you know what, I like that. Let's call it the Don't Say Gay Bill. And the media picked it up and they parroted it all over the country. And now everybody calls it the don't say gay bill. That's not what it says. What it says is we're trying to protect the minds and the hearts of the innocent, of the children in our society. And so now we have Hollywood that's mobilized. We have companies and organizations. We have Disney who is mobilized, who is protesting this bill because it smushes down the voice of the LGBT agenda. We are talking about children that are age five to eight. There are people and companies, and we all know Disney is guilty of this, that do not have the right intentions. It is not for purity. It is not for holiness. So that's my little soapbox for this morning. Um, Applied to our hearts, it speaks of pure motives. Speaks of undivid- undivided devotion. If there is one thing that is a huge plague in the church today, it is, divide- it is being double-minded. It is a division because we want to serve the Lord, but then there are some who want to follow the world. And we can't serve the Lord and follow the world at the same time. Our devotion is divided. In John 2, 23, it says that now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. People believed initially when they saw the signs that he was doing, but they were still Divided in their hearts. And Jesus knew this. And what happens when we become divided in our hearts is we become miserable Christians, gang, because we have just enough of Jesus in us to not be able to enjoy the world. And we have just enough of the world in us for us to not be able to enjoy Jesus. And we become a mixed up, divided people um, that are miserable as Christians. Uh, James I love James. You guys know that. I love James. James 4.4, he says says it very plainly. He pulls no punches. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's a verse that the modern church needs to hear very badly. Um, We're to be friendly, but we're not to be a friend of the world. We're not to be linked to. We're not to be connected to. We're to be set apart called out different. So what's the solution? Well, James gives it to us a few verses later and he's just as black and white. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify your hearts. If you're double-minded, you're not pure in heart. We need to be whole. We need to be all in. In his presence." will be cleansed. There's a great story in 1 Samuel 5. And it starts off kind of tragically. It's the same story of the Israelites who have wandered away from, from God and they have thrown themselves into the world and they have fallen into idolatry. And so God says, okay, here we go again. The Philistines are going to conquer you. And so the Philistines win the battle over the Israelites. They rout them and they capture the Ark of the Covenant. The physical, tangible presence of God to them, that they would take everywhere, got captured by the Philistines, they take it back and place it into the the house of one of their gods, into the temple of Dagon, okay? And Dagon is this half-fish, half-man idol that the Philistines worshipped. And they set the ark down next to him and they all go to bed. And the next morning they get up and they walk into the temple and Dagon is face down in front of the ark. It's awesome. They're like, what? What happened here? So they set the idol back up. They set Dagon up. They go through their day. They get up the next morning and Dagon face down in front of the ark again. Only this time without his head and without his hands. People are like, this thing's got to go. We got to get rid of it. So they send it. The people start to be afflicted with tumors and all kinds of things. They say, get it out of here. So they send it to another city. Those people start to break out in tumors and become afflicted. And so they go to the priests of Dagon. They said, what do we do? And they said, listen, short story. Um, you need to put it on a cart. You need to put it, you know, hook it up to some cows and get that thing back to Israel. You need to get the presence of God out of here because our sin isn't going to bow to it. Right? The idol is bowing. Sin will bow in his presence. We don't want his presence here. We want our sin. So go ahead and send the ark back to the Israelites. So it's a crazy story. What's the point? Even though we fail, even though we fall down, those who belong to God need to be motivated towards purity. We have to be motivated towards purity. Our sincere desire needs to be for holiness, even though sometimes sin halts the fulfillment of that desire. We still need to be desiring holiness. If there are idols in your life, if there are things that are set up that you know need to go, you need to bring in the ark. You need to bring in the presence of the Lord in worship in Bible reading, um, being in his presence around other, you know, Christians, being in the word. We sang uh, a song last week, called Praise Your Name, where it talks about fear and depression, shame and confusion, you have to bow. All lesser things that demand our attention have to bow to the Lord. We got to get those Dagon idols out of our life, right? We do that by being in his presence. Then there will be purity, And purity is more than just sincerity. It's more than just being religiously sincere because you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Uh, The Pharisees were the most sincere religious people of their day. And Jesus looked at them. He said, listen, you guys tithe your spices. Like you guys carve out a tenth of your spices and give it the low. You guys are so sincere, but you have missed out on the weightier measures of justice and mercy and faithfulness. You guys are sincere, but you're religiously wrong. You're, you're all caught up in rituals instead of relationship. Purity is more than just religious sincerity. And conversely, it's more than just doing good deeds. If you're doing good deeds without a genuinely good heart, that's wrong as well. That doesn't create purity. Uh, Thomas Watson said, morality can drown a man as fast as vice. Philanthropists, the philanthropists will end up in hell, if they do not have a pure heart, if they have not surrendered their lives to the Lord, because that is what's required, a pure heart, our lives surrendered to his. He said a ship can still sink, whether it's carrying gold or manure, it can still sink. doesn't matter what the intentions are. It only matters positionally where we are in him. Purity of heart is perfection of heart. Later on, Jesus would tell his disciples, he would say, you need to be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, I would have been the one with my jaw open. What? How can we be perfect? What do you mean by that? That's impossible. God's standard is perfection. But we tend to measure ourselves against other people, don't we? We look at other people, whether we read stories or people we see, and we're like, man, at least I'm not as bad as that guy right? But then we become like the Pharisee who went to the temple to pray and he looks at the tax collector next to him and he's like, thank you, God, that I ain't like this guy, right? And we do that. We're like, oh man, thank God I'm not like that person. But you know what? Sinner, just like that person, the sinner in need of a savior, very much so. Religion doesn't make us pure. Good deeds don't make us pure. We can't be fully pleasing to the Lord until we're perfect as he is perfect, And David knew this in Psalm 24, verse three says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Our impurity separates us from the Lord. Only our repentance and his presence will make us pure. It's nothing we can do on our own. There's only two types of religion, gang. There is the religion of human achievement. Basically, I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to discipline myself. I'm going to try harder. That's every world religion, by the way. Or there is the religion of a divine accomplishment. What Jesus has already accomplished on the cross, what he provided for us for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished. It's finished. The work is done. There's no more work. It's not about works. It's about belief. It's about believing in him. Jesus offers his purity to us. And Paul wrote in Ephesians, he wrote it right out of the gate. Chapter one, verse seven, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, our impurities are dissolved in the blood of his sacrifice. Uh, Moses' brother Aaron was the very first high priest. So Aaron was the first high priest, and his sons served with him. But before they could serve, they had to be purified. They had to be consecrated to the Lord. And so part of the process for this is they took a ram, and they sacrificed it. And then Moses took some of the blood, which I always thought this was so strange, and he smears it on the right earlobe, and on the right thumb, and on the right toe. And I was like, that's gross. Like, why do you do that? Well, I was reading one Old Testament commentator, and he said this. I found it pretty interesting. The fully consecrated must be pure in words and actions and in life. For words are judged by hearing. The hand is the symbol of action and the foot of the pilgrimage of life. Paul says faith comes by hearing, right? And hearing by the word of the Lord. James says now you need to put it in action. You need to put feet to your faith. So you hear it, you believe it, you put it into action, and this is what we call the Christian walk. We're walking it out. So it's all-encompassing. It's proof to the outside world of our salvation when we hear it and believe it and walk it out, practically. Aaron and his sons, they had no righteousness in and of themselves. It had to be given to them that they would be holy and set apart. And it was symbolized by the garments that they wore, all that stuff in Leviticus that we have a hard time reading through. Through their garments and through all of the rituals, it had to be what we call imputed, imputed righteousness. It had to be given to them from an outside source, which is what we need as well. It's why we need Jesus. Um, And Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 1.30, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. No one can boast because they don't have it. It's not in us. We need it from Jesus only when we're in Christ. We went and ate the big biscuit yesterday. It was good. (laughs) That big biscuit is now in me. You can't see it. It is covered in Nathan. A little more of Nathan now at the big biscuit. There are several types of purity and we see these in the scriptures. The first is what we call primal purity. This is the purity that only belongs to God. He always has been pure, he always will be pure. That is what we call primal purity. And then created purity. When God created everything, he created it perfect. It was pure, it was holy before the fall. Then we have what we just touched on, and that is positional purity. Once you've put your life in God's hands, once you have surrendered your life to Jesus and made him Lord of your life, you are now positionally pure. You are perfect because you are in Christ. And when God looks at you, then he only sees his son who is perfect. I don't want to stand in front of God just as Nathan, because I do not have purity. I am a sinner. I need to be in Christ if I am going to be forgiven. Then we have what Paul and Peter wrote so much about, which is practical purity, right? Everyday desire for purity. Second Corinthians 7.1, Paul has just finished writing about not being yoked with the world. Um, and we're to be set apart and the promises that come along with that. And he says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And I've said this before, but we have a part to play. We have a response to this debt that has been forgiven and it's to live lives of holiness, not being defiled by the world. Uh, one more verse here from first Peter one verse thirteen therefore Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. Gang, if purity or desire for purity does not characterize our life, we are in big trouble. There has to be a desire for purity purity and holiness because if there's not then we either don't belong to God or we are living in disobedience which is a very very dangerous place to be and the purity that we all long for someday is ultimate purity this is what we desire when we stand in the Lord's presence we'll be perfected first John 3 says see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I believe this day is coming soon. I believe this day is coming soon. The way things are going in the world, it isn't far away. And Even if it is, our lives here on earth are so brief, especially in light of eternity. People have 40, 50, 60 years that they want to flesh out here and live for themselves when on the other side of it is eternally and where we are positionally before our day's end will determine where we spend that eternity. When Jesus comes back, there will no longer be a division between secular and sacred. It'll all be sacred. It'll all be wholeness. It will all be holiness when Jesus returns. Uh, right now, everything's mixed together, right? We're called to be lights in the middle of darkness. Um, but when he returns, there will only be holiness. Uh, we're God's children now. That is our identity. But we'll be perfected when our identity meets its fulfillment in him, when we see him face to face. We'll experience the reality of the promise when he is ruling and reigning on this earth. Does anybody have bumper stickers on their car? Anybody have bumper stickers, things they stick on their car? Everywhere we go, I find it fascinating, all these things that people stick on their cars. Put those up here. I found, these are some that I found. I thought it was kind of funny. This first one, evidently this couple doesn't have any kids because they have bags of cash instead of kids next to them. Um, This next person likes to run. I don't know why people who run feel the need to tell everybody that they run. That's good for you. I I, I like the ones that say 0.0. Then life is better with a dog, oh, pet owners, yes, coexist. We see this one all the time. We just need to be, right, all different religion, religions. We all just need to coexist together. Um, and then, of course, the Star Wars family, um, they're telling us that they like Star Wars. So um, this is, I like the one where it says that, um, what does it say, the, um, the dark side doesn't care about your stick figure family, and, <laughs> and the stick figures are like running and the spaceships are like shooting them by. It's funny. But what people are doing when they're slapping these on their cars are trying to tell you something about themselves. I'm trying to give you something about my identity. Now, I don't know if there's going to be cars in the kingdom. I'm going to have a horse. Okay, I'm going to have a horse in the kingdom. It's kind of funny because, you know, back in the day, normal people rode horses and only the rich people could afford cars. But now normal people drive cars and really it's only the rich people that can afford to have horses. So it's kind of backwards. Oh, how the stables have turned. I had to work that in there. <laughs> A lot of head to. Yes. Listen to what Old Testament prophet Zechariah writes about when we're living in the millennial kingdom where there will be horses. It doesn't say anything about cars. Um, this is Zechariah 14. I would encourage you to go home, read Zechariah 14 this week. This is all about uh, the millennial kingdom. And it says in verse 20, On that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. No bumper stickers. Everything will be holy. That'll be our identity. Our identity, everything's identity will be found in the Lord. So what's the path to purity? Uh, What is the way to this holiness? Many people through the ages have thought that they needed to get it through seclusion. Like if I can just separate myself physically from the world, then I won't be defiled by the world. But the problem with that is everywhere you go, there you are. You're taking it with you. You are defiled. So it's not through seclusion. Jesus said we're to be lights in this world. We're to be cities set on a hill. We are not to be disappearing from it. We're in it. We're just not supposed to be of it. And God always makes provisions for the things that he commands. He always makes provisions for what he commands. And the first thing we do very simply is just admit our weakness. Just admit it. I'm impure. I am defiled. I am in need. Because when we admit our weakness, weakness reaches out for strength. That's what that does. Uh, Paul wrote, I will boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ can rest on me. I'm going to boast. Today we have people who complain about their weaknesses for sympathy, right? Paul said, I'm going to boast because I know I'm weak. And when I have power on me, that doesn't come from me because I'm weak. It comes from the Lord. So I'll boast in it because I'm reaching out for strength, and that's what I want. I want his strength in my life, and it only comes from Jesus. Next thing we do is we live in the Bible. Um, These are not complicated things, but they're things that we need to be consistent with. We can say it that way. Next we we just live in the Bible. Charles Spurgeon once said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. There are lots of books that people will go buy and pick up and read when we have this at home. And it says close a lot of the time. I heard somebody say once that don't say that God is silent when your Bible is closed. He wants to speak to you, but you got to open up his word. This is the source of truth. John 15, 3, Jesus said, Already you are clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. Ephesians 5, 25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. The word is what does that. Stay in the word when you spend time with the Lord. And thirdly, we just ask for it. We pray. We pray for holiness and purity. David prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me and don't cast me away from your presence. If we have those digons in our life, we need to repent in prayer and desire his presence in our lives. Our repentance and his presence its what's going to make us pure again. And the result of this holiness, the result is they shall see God. Um, The Greek translation here is literally they shall be constantly seeing God for themselves. They'll be consistently, continuously seeing God for themselves. Intimate knowledge of the Lord is reserved for those who are pure in heart. And when your heart is pure, you will have an ever-increasing desire to see the Lord and to know his plans, to know his will. Um, Okay, we're almost done. Uh, there's an incredible story in Exodus 33 where Moses has assembled the people at Mount Sinai and he's having this conversation with God and God's telling him it's time to head out. We're going to go to the promised land and he's having this conversation back and forth with God and I just wanted to read through this because Moses was a man who was pure in heart. He wanted to see God. He wanted to see his face literally and so I'm just going to read through this. Exodus 33 starting in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, "'See, you say to me, bring up this people, "'but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. "'Yet you have said, I know you by name, "'and you have also found favor in my sight. "'Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, "'please show me now your ways that I may know you "'in order to find favor in your sight. "'Consider too that this nation is your people.' "'And he said, my presence will go with you, "'and I will give you rest. "'And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, "'do not bring us up from here.' For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and that I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. That's interesting, you shall stand on the rock. I never noticed that before. Jesus is the rock. We stand on the rock, and he passes by. That's awesome. Um, And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses wanted to see the Lord. He said, not yet, Moses. You can't see me yet. No man can see me and live, Um, but you can see my goodness. And he places him on the rock. That's awesome. So what is the mark of his people? It's his presence going with us. It was the mark of his people, the Jews, as he was going with them through um, into the promised land. It is to be the mark of his adopted sons and daughters now that his presence accompanies us everywhere we go. And while we see bits and pieces here, we see little bits of glory here on earth, but we desire to see his face. That is our desire as Jesus followers. And we're told in that day, when we see him, we will be made like him. We will be made pure. So I found this video. I'm going to end with this video and hopefully the sound works because we're having trouble with the speaker earlier. Um, But it does a masterful job of encapsulating exactly what holiness is.
1: You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the
2: idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So, a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system. And it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so, you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further, in that the whole area around the sun is
1: also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun the more intense it gets.
2: Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox
1: of God's holiness it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground and Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of
2: God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous.
1: Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution
2: is that you need to become Pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple
1: again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about.
2: Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there and he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim.
1: Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs)
2: Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for.
1: So this burning coal somehow makes isaiah pure yeah it's remarkable
2: because normally if you touch something impure it transfers its impurity to you but now here's this new idea where you have this coal this very holy and pure object and it touches isaiah and it transfers its purity to him isaiah is not destroyed by god's holiness; he's transformed by it i mean the implications of this are just huge but there's one more development this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream, and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive.
1: So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know.
2: Until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure. People with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them... Their impurity should transfer over to Jesus, but instead Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies.
1: Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision.
2: Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them.
1: So this is our part of the story
2: where we find ourselves now, but... Where is this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life.